Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. Okay, everybody, before we get into today's episode, I just want to share something I am so excited about. As I'm recording this, we are days away from launching the newest Kickstarter for Stoneblade Entertainment, Soulforge Fusion. Now, for those of you that don't know what Soulforge Fusion is, it is a reimagining of the digital trading card game Soulforge that I co-designed with Richard Garfield, and we have now turned it into a physical hybrid deck game. What is a hybrid deck game, you ask? Great question. We've taken the concept of unique deck printing, digital deck printing, and combine that with the jumpstart or smash up shuffle building idea. So you can have completely unique decks that are algorithmically generated by new technology that we've developed and you take any two half decks that you have and you smash them together and you play a 100% unique experience. Soulforge as a game has the core elements of your cards level up as you play them so the cards you play actually transform and get replaced with higher level cards as you play them. There's strategic lane based combat, lots of battle, cool creatures, cool spells. There's tons of awesome stuff here and I worked directly with Richard again on this revamp, this reimagining. If that's something that sounds cool to you, I can't get into all the details here because I know you're here for the episode, but if you want to know more or you're interested in being along for the ride and seeing some of the design articles and behind-the-scenes images, go to stoneblade.com slash soulforge. That's stoneblade.com forward slash S-O-L-F-O-R-G-E and sign up to find out more. Thanks. In today's episode, I speak with Peter Atkinson. Peter is a legend of the gaming industry. And when I say legend of the gaming industry, I think it really just doesn't do quite enough justice. The truth is that the gaming industry as we know it today would not exist without Peter. Peter is the founder and the first CEO of Wizards of the Coast and was responsible for not only bringing Magic the Gathering to the marketplace, but also distributing the Pokemon trading card game during its height and eventually purchased Dungeons and Dragons and was able to revitalize that brand. And is Peter is now the current owner of Gen Con, which is the largest tabletop gaming convention in the United States and becomes a huge hub for where all new games come out and where communities can come together. And so Peter has touched everybody's life that's listening to this almost certainly in one way or another. And he's also touched my life very directly. He's been a mentor of mine for many years. This interview is actually the first one I was able to do in person, and I was doing it at Peter's studio, at uh, Chaldea Studios. He's now making films and doing um, role-playing games and translating them into uh, dynamic films that he's streaming live on Twitch, and we talk about that a bit in the episode. But we really talk about the origins and Peter's interest in gaming and how his first products really were started to be driven by the practicalities of just making role-playing playing games as his one true love weren't quite there and how magic got originated and then how that all comes full circle and he ends up purchasing TSR and becoming responsible for shepherding his true love of Dungeons and Dragons into the modern era and you can really get a sense of how 
good a human being Peter is, right? We talk about what it's like to sell your company when he sold his company to Hasbro. We talk about all the ups and downs and trials and tribulations of being a part of a company that grows and then and then leaving that company and then starting another one with Hidden City Games and starting other projects. And, and so he's got such a breadth of experience. But the thing that I know from having spent so much time with him and I know everybody that's worked with him is, is just how good of a human being and a soul he is in addition to being a great business person and gamer and uh, Peter really revitalized my belief in what business and gaming can be. That just because you want to succeed in business doesn't mean you have to leave behind the community and the goodwill and the whole reason why we got into gaming in the first place. And so I am really excited to get to share this talk with you. It's always a pleasure for me to get to talk and spend time with Peter. Uh, and I'm excited to be able to now share that with you. So without further ado, here is Peter Atkinson. <music> Welcome. I'm here with Peter Atkinson. Peter, it's great to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What an honor. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I usually start these interviews kind of in the conversations talking about your origin story. And, and while I want to get to that, um, I, I actually am going to start kind of at the end here because this is the first time I'm doing an interview uh, with uh, someone face to face for this podcast. And uh, because we're able to do that, because we are in your studio, the Chaldea Studios, uh, which is pretty cool. Maybe talk a little bit about that, your latest project, and we'll work our way backwards this time. Sure, sure. Yeah, I can walk backwards. Yeah, no problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so what I'm doing is called Chaldea. It is, we're telling a big epic fantasy story. That's that's our goal. And it, Chaldea is my old Dungeons & Dragons campaign, which I started back in 1980 and have been DMing ever since. And our goal was to like craft a story set in this world, pulled, uh, you know, pulled from real adventures that happened uh, throughout the last 40 years, but also adding our own stuff. And the story is a mixture of live action film. And here at Caldea Studios, we do uh, live action films every once in a while, but it's very expensive to do like a big story that way. You know, it has all the complexities of a period piece and then plus monsters and magic. So uh, it's fantasy is expensive. So we do short films that we stick into the story most of the story is told through comic book art with a full sound treatment, voiceover from actors, uh, sound effects, musical score, and all that stuff because uh, sound is a lot cheaper than video. Yeah, so I'm actually really glad we started there now because there's a couple of key threads that uh, I have noticed, and I've known you for a long time now, but I have noticed that run through really your entire career. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, of course, being one of them, right? This was the, the, to use the terminology Richard Garfield introduced to, the radioactive spider bite, right? That got you excited about games and got you into this industry in the first place. Uh, but, you know, you are, you know, we're the founder and CEO of Wizards of the Coast. You are, while you do design games and craft uh, role-playing experiences, you see yourself more as the business person and the, you know, the, the, the force behind it. And, and I don't know if people noticed while they were listening, but the, you, you sort of already talked about, well, I want to bring this creative vision to life, but I want, I need to, but it's too expensive to do this way. And so how can I get the most bang for my buck to be able to say, okay, let's tell this story as a mix of live action and uh, and uh, animation or uh, comic books, and how can I build something that works within a budget? And and that's actually something that I think a lot of designers 
don't think about, but it's super powerful. And in fact, if, as I recall, and maybe you can tell this story, right? When Richard Garfield first approached you uh, to, to make a game or with a game, you, he, was, he brought you RoboRally, uh, but you asked for something that was a little bit cheaper to make. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Simpler, you know, like Magic the Gathering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a saying, uh, constraints breed creativity. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And so, uh, and I want to rush in to say I'm not trying to steal anything from Richard as being the person who designed Magic and had the great epiphany of a trading card game. Uh, but I did give him some constraints to work with. I said, I want a card game, no other components, just cards with a fantasy or science fiction theme. And um, he, uh, he took it from there and created Magic. Yeah. Yeah, right. So that's that's amazing to think about. It wasn't it wasn't just this oh blue sky, I can make anything I want, do whatever I want, but that the constraints breed creativity, which is something I have absolutely found and something where I, I recommend for new designers is artificially put constraints on yourself like find ways if you don't have someone external force to do that then uh you know make them for yourself create short deadlines produce you know pitch find uh there's plenty of these uh design pitch programs out there where it can say okay design a game that only uses 12 cards and has a theme about nature and it's like okay the difference of one you even just listening to that right your brain starts moving in certain directions as opposed to just go make a game there's a right. much more like much more intimidating uh, kind of process. Well, and and constraints of can we make this economically? Right. That's a really practical constraint. Yes, <laughs> yes, it most certainly is. And so, so what? Maybe let's now we can kind of you know rewind the clock a little bit there. So you you started. Uh, you were working at Boeing, I believe, at the time, and then you decided you wanted to start making games. Where did you know? Did you do you have savings that you put into that? What was what? How did you decide what your economic constraints were going to be? Well, we knew that um, we didn't have much money ourselves. I, I, I came from a very poor background, Justin. I was raised on a farm in Idaho. Uh, most of my I didn't know anybody who was wealthy. Really, uh, didn't know even how to raise money. So, but our constraints at the beginning were to just do role-playing game products, role-playing game supplements, um, and to do them fairly cheap, fairly modestly, and kind of bootstrap from there. We didn't know a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of things we did not, not know how to do, but the sense was we had to do this pretty economically. And uh, we raised some money from friends and family and friends of family and that sort of thing. Uh, but. Yeah, it was it was pretty pretty modest expectations for what we wanted to so, do. So maybe walk me through that process a little bit because to say, hey, I love role playing games. I want to make some role playing game supplements. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's not the best of business models. Uh, <laughs> for, fortunately, we were completely unaware of that. Right. Okay. So 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 yeah, it wasn't a great business strategy. Uh, it it got us into business, which meant that I eventually met Richard Garfield, and then we're able to craft a real strategy around a a, a good game. But no, this was, um, it was just a passion. It was just like, hey, we want to do this. We want to make these supplements. We were, I will say, we were well qualified in terms of the content. We were all avid RPG players um, and uh, thought ourselves as RPG designers. And 
we just we just kind of dived in. It was uh, it, it was more luck than brains, to be honest. Well, well, I mean, yes, luck is uh, of course to to have the tier of success that, that that you guys did. There's some luck has to be involved, but but I think there's a lot of core principles here that are really meaningful and, and stuff that I've heard echoed from you know successful designers and business people across everybody I've talked to on this podcast and beyond. That you know finding something that you're passionate about is so critical, right? That you care enough to overcome the infinite challenges that are in your future that you don't know what those challenges are right you thought that maybe designing rpg supplements was going to be a fine business and you had to hit that wall and be like oh no wait something that's not quite right so what how do we pivot to be able to do that and 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 so how maybe like i'm curious how along that path when what how long did it take for you to feel like okay no this isn't the right direction and then start shifting gears right well, one thing that happened, uh, I think two things that really kind of led to us shifting and pivoting. One is that the RPG market declined in the early 90s from where it was. And so even though we had hired somebody who was experienced in the industry, Lisa Stevens, who went on to found Paizo you know, a decade later, uh, based on the forecast that we had, turned out that we were not hitting those, those numbers. And so we learned that the RPG market uh, was not really a, a good market unless you have one of the market leaders. And so, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. And when we eventually exited the category, I remember saying, well, unless unless we had Dungeons and Dragons, this category is not worth being in, which was a nice foreshadowing sort of thing to say. Because yes, yes. eventually we did acquire Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and I, I would have I called a, you know, Vampire to Masquerade and a couple other uh, RPGs in that category. The other thing that happened uh, was that we did get Magic the Gathering with Richard. Richard came up with this hit, hit game, and uh, we launched it, and it did really, really incredibly well. And so then it was like, okay, then it was kind of obvious. Like, okay, you've got this hit game that's making a lot of money, but you're spending all this time on this line of other products that aren't making money. You know, you, you just have to be honest with what the data is and walk away from it. Yeah. So, so yeah. Let's let's unpack data a little bit here because I think this is a very tough thing for a lot of people, right? You said, uh, I heard you say that you made projections for what you expected to sell in the RPG space, uh, and you didn't hit those projections. About how long from you know of that runway did you have before you said, okay, this isn't working? Yes, we had. Uh, well, we knew right out of the gate that, that our initial sales were right. not hitting projections. But then you think, well, maybe that's marketing. Nobody knows who we are, that sort of thing. And so you, you keep at it for a few months and, uh, and see if numbers come up, if the market responds and, 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 and people start to, to really like, like the games. And uh, I would say it took us about a year to really figure out that this is, this is not working but it was weird you know it's challenging in that it was what do you do when it's kind of working right right no that's it that's actually that that i that is absolutely right that's the hardest part right i said the same thing when i'm testing a new game design and you're in the core design loop it's if you get feedback that's Obviously, if you get feedback that's great, phenomenal, keep going. But if you get feedback that's terrible, it's like, this is not working at all, that's also great because you know <laughs> to abandon that idea and move to something else. Right. It's that wishy-washy middle ground feedback. The game's selling kind of okay. If your playtesters are like, meh, it's fine, I kind of like it, then what do you do? How do you go forward? Do you cut bait? You know, that's, that's very tough. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think we're kind of for a while in this mode of like, well... It's, it's not enough to go out and get an office, you know, and have 
company cars or whatever, right? But if, as long as we're working in the basement of my house and there's just like four or five of us and everybody's working kind of part time, we're living the dream, man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we got these RPG markets on the on the on the on the market, and. One thing is that with the primal order, we always got great reviews. Like, okay, the sales weren't great, but they were good enough that we went back and got a reprint. You know, uh, we sold like 10,000 copies of the primal mm-hmm. order over in the first three or four years, which isn't bad for an RPG product that's outside of Dungeons and Dragons, and right. uh, especially in, in the 90s. So it wasn't a clear signal either way uh, for, for quite some time. So. And and then at the same time as you're doing this, you decide to to print magic, or is it? Yeah. So I, you know, I think I had an instinct early on, mm-hmm. <laughs> from within a few months of release, that this strategy of having an RPG, having RPG supplements, was something. Yeah, that maybe I could do in the basement of my house and make a little bit of money and be okay. But that if we really wanted to make good money in this industry and, and really create a business here as opposed to a hobby we needed to come up with something else. And so I did start looking pretty proactively at other possibilities uh, in the world of tabletop gaming, and that led me to Richard Garfield and led us to Magic and, uh, and so on. So uh, maybe uh, yeah, just unpacking that too, what does is, what is proactive looking look like? What are, you, what are you doing? So for me, proactive meant at that time, Usenet was like, the, the internet was just becoming a thing, and Usenet became this big hangout for people who were into games. And uh, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, forums online for discussion. And so I started hanging out a lot on Usenet as a way to meet other designers and proselytize about what I was doing, look for other ideas. And, uh, and I would go to conventions, uh, and mostly local conventions in the Seattle area because I didn't have enough money to travel. And that was how I met Richard Garfield. I met Richard Garfield through Mike Davis, who was his partner in um, uh, Robo Rally at the time. Mm-hmm. And that, that led me to Richard. So. Yeah, so obviously, you know, Usenet may not be the uh, the modern equivalent, but uh, <laughs> but there's plenty of groups, you know, Reddit, Facebook. Right. Um, there's plenty of Discord channels, um, as well as, of course, in-person conventions uh, like Gen Con, which we'll talk more about later, I'm sure, uh, are great places to to meet and connect and learn more about an industry or connect with fellow people who you might, might be able to help you or, you know, contribute and add value to those communities so that you become better known and that you can you know, better promote your own stuff down the road as well, or people might recruit you for, for things. So all that stuff uh, makes a lot of sense. And so, so you, you've, you, you've asked Richard for this, you know, make me a card game that I can, you know, doesn't have a lot of components that I can play in between rounds of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. As I yeah. I said, I, w- I want a short game you can play while you're waiting for your dungeon master to show up. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is amazing to me, that story. <laughs> uh, and and you very quickly now realize like okay this is there's something special here and I'm willing to invest in getting that done now for anybody out there that's thinking about making a trading card game I've also made several um, it can be very expensive right it's a lot of art that's required and 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 you didn't have a lot of money back then so you got kind of creative with that too I believe yes that's right uh, we had a lot of challenges to create the, you know, the first trading card game uh, art was one of them although art was also part of what stimulated the idea going to local conventions. Uh, in those days, fantasy art did not have a lot of outlets for getting published. Like if you were a fantasy artist, there weren't many, many ways that you could get your art into the public eye. And so I was noticing that at conventions like Norwest Con here in the Seattle area, 
there was a lot, there were artists that nobody had ever heard of that were producing great art. And so that was actually part of the idea for Magic with the Constraints. I said, hey, a card game, I think I know where we could get art pretty cost effectively. And, and that turned out to be, be correct. We got the art uh, pretty, uh, although Magic the Gathering needed a lot more art than what I was envisioning. Um, but yes, that's that's true. Yeah, and so it's, I, I just, I like kind of telling these stories because, you know, especially, you know, with your story where you know, created basically the biggest tabletop game in the history of the world, as far as I can tell uh, from, from pure metrics. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, not having a ton of money, having to solve, you know, build around constraints, having to, you know, sort of get, get creative and find where there's these, these, these niches in the market, being willing to, to kill your babies, right, too. Also, like when you realize like you're, you know, you, your love for RPGs far outstrips your love for trading card games in general, I would imagine, uh, and being able to say, no, no, this is the, this is the path. Um, that's not an easy thing. And I think a lot of people get hung up on this vision that they have of this is what it's supposed to be. This is what I need to build. And if they can't, or the market doesn't respond, then they, you know, give up or they keep beating their head against the same wall. What, what advice do you have for, for people out there that might be you know, unsure if, if they're in that they're in that wishy-washy phase, or they're not sure how to get the the feedback they want, or when when to decide to pivot versus you know try to build keep keep going. Well, for me, there was this moment uh, where it was a question: Am I building a hobby or a business? And that was the question I had to ask myself: Am I going to make decisions based on my personal artistic expression? of what it is I want to make, which, okay, double down on the RPGs and make it work and keep small and, and um, maybe you'll be able to support yourself someday. Or do I really want to create a business and play the game of business? Like, in, if I'm going to do that, then I've got to put those personal artistic things aside. Don't forget about your creativity. Use the creativity to help you get, come up with ideas and help you weigh in on various decisions that get made. And, and sure, don't detach from your personal loves. But if it's about a business, then it's like, okay, how do we maximize shareholder value? How do we write smart business plans and raise money? And what are the, the right businesses to be in and the right games to publish and make those analytics? So I, I just saw it very much as a Boolean sort of question. Mm. It's, it's either go left or go right. And I chose the, the business route. Yeah, yeah, and and I think there's not a there's not a right or wrong answer, uh, you know, objectively there for people that want to just make games that they just want their own vision to come through. That's cool, but you know. Well, well, I think there is a moral obligation if you've accepted money, mm. and so because I raised money to do initially RPGs, I felt that I had a moral ethical obligation to the people that invested money to maximize the return. So, so I, I felt like the business choice was also the ethical choice from that precept. If it, it was, yes, if it was entirely self-funded, then, or maybe if you had one investor that was more like a patron of the arts and just like, oh, I believe in you, Peter, go ahead and do this <laughs> thing. And I did have a couple of investors like that uh, who probably would have supported me no matter what. But uh, it was raising money. Now you have a different set of moral guideposts. Yeah, that's, a, that's also, I think, 
really interesting. One, I, I can absolutely relate, um, having you know gone through the process of both crowdfunding games and raising capital uh, for games. It's it changes the equation dramatically. Like I, the difference of how I feel when it's my own money on the line versus it's somebody else's money on the line is is night and day. Right? I have to now. I I owe these people. I have to. I owe you know doing everything in my power to make sure that they get a return on their investment. Um, and so it's something I actually do advise people now before you take in money. Make sure that your interests are aligned. And I don't care if that's crowdfunding, in which case, you know, you need to deliver something that the backers are going to love and you're capable of doing so. Or if it's venture funding and you are, you know, the kind of people that are going to want a, you know, 10x or 100x return or nothing, right? That was the other trick, right? Was right. I raised money and people who I'd raised money from were wanting to get, you know, go big or go home. Uh, and I would be perfectly happy going medium. I'm happy to just make some money and keep making doing what I do. Right. And that I didn't realize that until it was a little too late. Uh, I didn't either. I fell for the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Same issue. So, so it's a, it's a, in many ways, it's a, it's a trap to think I need to raise money. I need to do all of these things. Well, well it's interesting. You mentioned the crowdfunding. We didn't have crowdfunding then. So that was, you know, a fork in the road that didn't enter my mental calculations because I think the crowdfunding situation isn't about maximizing the value of your company. It's about maximizing the value of that particular product, that particular offering, right? Yeah, I love I love what crowdfunding has done to the game industry. I mean, it, it just changes exactly like you can have interest aligned. Like I, you know, with we did um, the Ascension Tactics Kickstarter last year, and it was not a game I could. It's like you know, miniatures in general are very like high upfront costs. It's not a game I could have justified building certainly not the way that we did on its own but with a with the you know backers being able to raise enough that we could just build the most awesome thing that i could imagine uh and uh you know as of recording this it's very very close to actually getting shipped out and i'm uh, uh that it's 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 amazing what it's been able to do yeah that's that's pretty cool i i agree uh crowdsourcing uh has been uh, a great overall net net huge benefit to our community so yeah, thinking about and, and and you know this sort of just ties back to the way you phrased it, which is like playing the game of business, and that's absolutely how I think about it, right? Running a company is you know you're trying okay, I'm trying to you know manage the resources that I have, and I want to maximize the returns, whether that be for shareholders, for customers, for your employees, right? And and there's something else that you mentioned here, and I'm thinking maybe it's good to dig into, which is you know it's the ethical thing to do, and I'm going to tell my own little story involving you because I. Uh, first started working in the game industry um, at uh, a company that this the CEO was not the most ethical person and I didn't as I kind of got to know him better and I got to know the the, the space better I really had a fear that that was just how business was done right people would just mm. backstab each other right the classic kind of idea of the, the Wall Street greedy person and uh, then I got to know you a little bit better, and you, you struck me as one of the kindest and most ethically focused people I had ever met, and really restored my faith in what business could be like and what the industry could be like. And and you know there were several other people that were also like this, but yeah, how how did that come about for you? Like, do you do you, you when you face these sort of challenges, are you ever tempted to be like, oh no no, we have to go and maximize shareholder value and screw people over, or like what like it just it just radiates off of you? And I'd love to just hear more about how that's affected your business life. And but, well, first of all, I, I'll jump to that, but I I got to jump in and say this idea that thinking that you had to be that way to be a business person, I went through exactly that. I I went through exactly this thing of like, well, I will never be good, great at being a CEO because I just can't bring myself to be like, you know, unscrupulous. I mean, I was raised, I was raised in a rural farming community. 
not only did I not have any business background, I had what I would call anti-business background, hmm. <laughs> which was a family and culture where money was evil, rich people were evil, business people were evil. Uh, and so I always just figured, well, this is just going to be a disadvantage to me. Um, but I think actually it, that wasn't true. It turned out to be an advantage that you over the, for the long game, as people get to know you and realize that you're an ethical business person, they're more likely to do business with you. They're more likely they're not going to try and screw you on things. They're more likely to uh, appreciate a fair offer and say, okay, Peter's being fair, as opposed to like, what's the what's the hidden thing here, right? And so, uh, but it, it is absolutely the case that you have an ethical requirement to your shareholders and you have ethical requirements to your community, to your employees, to your business relationships, and all these things have to be balanced together. And those are, especially when it comes to profit versus employees, balancing the ethical responsibility you feel to all of these parties is where the hard decisions come. And there's no easy answer. And sometimes uh, you're going to make a decision that you regret later or wish you didn't have to make. It's That's just, you, you have to think of the long term. The other thing about um, protecting your shareholders and the company's value, it that allows you to be an employer longer and ultimately employ more people. And so if you have to make a short-term decision that seems to be on the surface of compromising your commitment to your employees in, in the name of profit, if it's really about the business surviving, it means that you'll be able to do a better service to your employees in the longer term. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that is that is a very hard lesson um, that I've also had to go through. Right, letting people go, and it's the hardest it's thing. The it hardest is, thing. It is the hardest thing. Letting letting people go is the hardest thing in business. And and so you know it's it's just the you know especially it feels like in the game industry, but I'm sure this is true everywhere where you know you feel like family, right? You're working together towards common goals that you really care about. You're all kind of like pulling, and and there's this implied promise of like hey when we all succeed we all succeed together but also sometimes we're not all succeeding or sometimes someone is even if the company is succeeding somebody is not adding value that you know they're taking and they're functionally that means they're taking away value from other people or or another thing that i've learned and maybe we can dive into too is like the power of culture and how corrosive if there's even one person at your company that is not you know they, they have a negative attitude towards things they're not working as hard as everybody else then other people will look at that person and be like well why should i work hard? right why right. should i be positive yeah it's not fair to the rest you have to you have to fix those problems and um those problems are painful to fix it's always painful to let somebody go or put them on some sort of disciplinary action or whatever it takes uh, but that's i um while it's painful i don't feel an ethical quandary over it like like that is just something that has to be done for the the greater um, good of, of the of the rest of the employees and so I always in that, when I'm in those situations I imagine the other employees standing behind me when I'm having that difficult conversation mm-hmm. with the employee that that's having uh, a difficult time you know, li- living up to what they need to do I just imagine everybody else rooting for me you know yeah and that, that's how I get through it uh, the other thing that I didn't realize until kind of years later um I remember I was once having a conversation with Tom Kirby who was the founder and CEO of Games Workshop for many years and um I mentioned something about the game industry in this com in this conversation. And he says, "Oh, there's no game industry." And I'm like, "What? Of course there's a game." He's like, "No, there's it's not it's not a proper industry." And I I I it, I I really kind of 
found that comment irksome. You know, it took me years later to really come around to agreeing with him. The problem with our industry, uh, uh, tabletop games specifically, not necessarily electronic games, is that somebody finds their dream job in the tabletop games industry and then it doesn't work out. Oftentimes they don't find another job. Like, like there's not, it's not like an industry where you can just like, oh, I work at the Hyatt and I lose my job, I can cross the street and start working at the Marriott. I mean, there's so many stories, so many people I've worked with over the last 30 years who worked in the game industry who weren't able to find a second job in this industry. Yeah, but is that, I mean, is that, would the same argument apply that that means the entertainment industry is not an, an, is not an industry, right? Like if you're, in the, if you're an actor, right? A lot of actors try and they never get back, you get one gig and then they well, don't get to act again. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're choosing the, the flakiest of all the <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, acting is, is, is hard, but I mean, but if you're a crew, if you've got, even in this small, t- uh, Seattle's a small town when it comes to filming, if, if you've got a reputation of being a good gaffer, uh, then you you know you're going from project to project, but right. But is isn't that the thing? The reputation of being good at what you do is that that is that the key here? Because that's where to me it's like any industry where, and I definitely push back here because I'm I'm interested in the topic. But like any industry where you're in high demand, right? It's a very uh, it's an industry that's appealing to a lot of people, whether that's you know right. acting or music or gaming, right? There's going to be a lot of competition, and if you're not you know, consistent and good at what you do, then it, it might be hard to make a living doing that. Yeah, but my sense is that other industries uh, that are bigger have more of a tolerance for some level, some degree of mediocrity. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I would say. Sure. And I and I I think that there are people that have been really good at writers, maybe not game designers. I don't know. Uh, the game design is its own path. It's often a solitary, independent path. But um, I think employees who find themselves working at a, at a good company like a Wizards of the Coast uh, and have a good salary and good benefits and they lose that job, have a lot of trouble finding another company to, uh, that's just my own experience of yeah. what I've seen. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, and there's there's been a lot of overlaps now between the tabletop game industry and the digital gaming industry, which of course has grown enormously. Um, and it still shocks me that both continue to grow enormously. I thought tabletop gaming might have, you know, gotten eaten alive by all the digital games that's out there, but it doesn't appear to be the case. Oh, well, it's so good that it hasn't. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm <laughs> grateful for it. Believe me, I, I think a lot about that. I just uh, so lucky oh, that the I, thing I'm passionate about happens to still be a great passion of many other people. And that, you know, uh, we now, you know, can teach people game design and continue to have new people grow and make new things. And there's more games now than there have ever been before. It's like, it's hooray, <laughs> hooray yeah. universe. Yeah, no, I, you know, I... You know, I cut my teeth in the 90s, right? Wizards, for me, my time at Wizards of the Coast was almost exactly the 90s. And that was when computer games were becoming huge. And MMOs were just starting at the very end of that uh, with EverQuest. And that was the fear, was that the legitimate fear, like, oh, are computer games going to completely replace tabletop games? Is this is this category, games like Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, as tabletop games, are they going to be completely gone you know, within 10, 20 years. And it's so nice that that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's created this interesting kind of synergy where, of course, now, you know, both Dungeons & Dragons and Magic have online elements and online ways to play, but that has only increased the physical game. Right. And the same was true right. for, for my game for Ascension when I was really nervous when we released the app, right? You could buy a game, a box of Ascension for $40 and it takes you about 30, 45 minutes to play. Or you can get the app 
for free, <laughs> play it in five minutes. I was like, oh, well, I'm doomed, right? I'm just going to give away my all the store. And as it turns out, the exact opposite, right? I, I don't think Ascension would still be around today if not for the app. And and people who play the app then say, okay, cool. Now maybe I'll check out the physical game. Congratulations like, on that game, by the way. Thanks. That was great. Thanks. Well, you were, well done. You, Bravo. You, <laughs> Bravo. Well done. Yeah. You were you were mentoring me uh, through some of that process when we were first getting it in. So I, 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 I appreciated the help. And it's uh, it's exciting to... But you mentioned computer games, you know, and, and not trying to belabor this point about transferability of jobs within our industry. Uh, I recently did a segment of Fireside uh, every weekly interviews, kind of like a, a podcast, but we did it on video here. And I interviewed a whole bunch of people that I had met who worked at TSR back in the 80s and early 90s who migrated Wizard of the Coast. And most of them were either now not working in our industry anymore or had moved to computer games. And so computer games has become the safety net, I think, to some extent for tabletop games. Yeah, yeah. There's there's huge amounts of crossover. In fact, you know, yeah, being here here in Seattle for the the month, I've met with tons of my friends who all used to be in the tabletop industry and are now making uh, digital games or apps or whatnot. And right. so there's there's a huge amount of crossover there. Um, so I you know brought up TSR again, and of course this has been I couldn't uh, live with myself if I didn't get to hear this story on the podcast. That you know for someone who grew up and fell in love with Dungeons and Dragons and started trying to make games or role playing supplements, but said no, you know what this doesn't make sense unless it's Dungeons and Dragons. Tell me the story about getting acquiring Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a great story. Uh, I mean that is like a dream come true. That is like um, I. I do love Magic the Gathering a lot, but you were right. Uh, my first love was always role-playing games, especially D&D. And so, you know, in the mid-90s, after Magic came out and was a big hit and started to, you know, to approach maturity, we started accumulating a lot of cash. And so we ended up with a lot of pressure from our board and our shareholders to either start give, issuing dividends to get cash back to the shareholders or go out and buy somebody basically find a way to use the cash or give it up and i didn't want to do that so we were starting we were on the hunt for i just, I just want to pause there for a second because i that this is exactly tied into our earlier thing right when you have investors when you have shareholders right their interests now start to push you in directions maybe you don't want to go so that's really interesting that Ed, like you got all this money you got to spend it yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy to me well yeah put it spend it wisely yeah. you know put it to use um do a smart acquisition or a smart build out of something, you know, like game stores, uh, or or give it back to us, you know. We own the money, we're the shareholders. So there was, a, we were on the hunt for uh, smart acquisitions in the mid 90s. Um, I approached TSR as, you know, the sort of the most obvious example and uh, was uh, rejected politely, but curtly. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then later on, now, apparently the owners really did not like me, but I, they didn't give me that direct impression. Uh, they eventually, the company got into a lot of trouble. Uh, TSR got in a lot of trouble in 1990. Uh, boy, the years are blurring together. But uh, I think the end of 1995, 1996, uh, they made some decisions that ended up being uh, really hurtful for them. And they had some systemic problems in the way their company was structured that turned out to be very damaging for them when they ended up in a cash flow shortage. And so coming into 1997, uh, they were on the verge of bankruptcy. They, they did not give me a call directly, but uh, Ryan Dancy, who deserves a lot of credit for making this deal happen, he was, uh, he knew this was happening and uh, he was trying to put it investor group together to buy TSR. So he had established uh, good um, communication lines with the former owners. Uh, 
And, but he wasn't able to quite pull it together. He wasn't able to get the capital uh, that was needed. Uh, and so he eventually reached out to me uh, and um, reached out to the TSR owners, got them to get past this. You know, when, when your company is in a dire enough situation, you become, the, the possibilities that you're willing to entertain become bigger. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so uh, Ryan Dancer really uh, connected us uh, and uh, wanted us, well, wanted me wizards to finance his him buying TSR and I'm like well if we're gonna pay the money to buy TSR we're gonna own it and then you can come work for me how's that and Ryan's <laughs> like okay I'll do that and so we um and by his company is you know that was kind of like the commission on the sale yeah 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 that's nice nice little bonus deal yeah yeah aqua hire I think is what they call yeah, it right? yeah, yeah, yeah 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 and so uh, we made everybody whole. We uh, we worked out the deal. Uh, there was uh, a lot of back and forth. It was uh, not an easy transaction. It was complex. One of those transactions where the letter of intent keeps getting expanded and expanded and expanded until it's almost the contract, right? And uh, we got it done, I think, in May 1997. And lots of trips back to uh, Lake Geneva which where the headquarters of TSR were uh, pre-Watsi acquisition, where the birth of Dungeons and Dragons really happened. And uh, we, we got it done. It was the, the most thrilling day of my life was, you know, the, the, we did the, we signed everything one night, and the next morning, okay, I'm the owner, and I'm showing up in my rental car, and I sat out in front of the TSR building and just kind of had a little, breakdown (laughs) just like oh my god what have I done and go in to face these people uh wonderful people many of which were legends in in role-playing and Dungeons and Dragons legends you know people like Kim Mohan and Jeff Easley and uh just so on uh and also some really young smart talent like Monty Cook and people that would go on to great things to go in there and say hey I just bought you it's so weird like it's like, like <laughs> I own you, know, you now <laughs> I own you now it's so corporate yeah, you know yeah, it's yeah. like like no matter what your intentions and and it was one of the best acquisitions possible in so many ways you still feel like something of a corporate raider of some yeah. sort. Yeah, you're you know? Darth Vader coming in and you hear it's, the noise in the background. <laughs> but fortunately, they lived in a situation for so long where it was clear that they were in a lot of trouble. Um, I think for most of the employees there, it was more of a white knight situation. You know, it was like, um, uh, it was scary to be bought by the Magic Company based out in Seattle for a Midwest company that was an RPG company. That was certainly a scary thing. But we bought the whole company and kept it together. We relocated it to Seattle, but we kept all the pieces. The alternative would have been that if it had been gone into bankruptcy, it would have been broken up. Probably the books would have gone to Random House. Who knows what would happen to Gen Con, D&D, who knows, right? I mean, it, bankruptcies get really messy. Yeah. That's what happens. So how did you learn about how to do all these kinds of complex contract negotiations or setting all these things up? It sounds like, I mean, this one may be the hardest one, but <laughs> it's it's really intimidating for a lot of people when they're, you know, trying to negotiate new deals, maybe not something like buying well, TSR, yeah. but like... Oh, ha- yeah, it was very complex. I mean, you have to have the right people advising you, especially, you know, business, accounting, and legal, right? You, you, you know, what What's the business strategy going to be? Um, how to great legal staff uh, with um, uh, you know, people that we hired to help us with the structuring of the details and, and so forth. And also, I was just finishing up B school. Um, I 
was I had gone through a period of my time at Wizards of the Coast a little earlier where around 1994, 1995, when Magic was doing great and I should have been on top of the world, I was very seriously depressed because I realized I was in over my head. I didn't know what I was doing. I had people that knew words that I didn't, like balance sheet. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> that feels like an important one. <laughs> yeah, it seems important. Yeah. And so I went to business school and I signed up at a local University of Washington a program that was all done, uh, that was tailored around the needs of executives uh, who, so I was in a class with other executives. In fact, the former CEO of Alaska Airlines just retired. He was in my class at B-School, that was fun. And so the that was a two-year process and then the last quarter of B-School was the quarter I was also acquiring TSR. And so I was feeling confident about my ability to analyze the acquisition from a business perspective mm -hmm. and also from a financial perspective with the help. Like I knew, I felt like I knew how to enter, uh, to ask the right questions with uh, attorneys and accountants in that. So you recommend, so it's, it's something I've, I'm also, uh, wrestle with. So I went to law school before I became a game designer, <laughs> uh, which has certainly has had its value in, in contract negotiations. Um, but uh, I have I have often I had often wrestled with uh, whether or not business school would be worth it. You know, at a certain point, and I, I've seen you know some value. I've worked actually with the Wharton School of Business and done actually some some projects with them on innovation and creativity. Um, and so it's been a, it's been an interesting question for people out there that are kind of just starting in business. If you're you know you're starting and you're small, it feels like you don't necessarily need to go to business school. But as you start to grow, maybe those those skills become more more powerful. It was huge for me. Because again, I came from an anti-business background, if you will, and had so little knowledge of the different facets of business. Uh, but some of it is contracts and some of it's accounting. It, I, I think there's a lot of nuts and bolts in business school that was very valuable for me because I had just no exposure to it. I know that there's, I mean, it's a lot of details and things, but maybe if, is there, you know, one to three kind of top line principles or takeaways that you got out of business school that you're like, wow, that was incredibly yeah. valuable. For, for me, it was, there was one class in particular, which was called competitive strategies. And it was uh, taught by a professor named Charles Hill, University of Washington. I highly recommend him as a professor and uh, his work. He, um, this class broke down company strategies. And as a gamer, I just ate it up because it was at that moment that I started to realize, oh, this thing of business is it's just a game. It's like a worker placement game. Like where, where do I put my resources? And how are these things gonna interact? And there's a scoreboard over here called, you know, shareholder value. There's other scoreboards, whichever ones you wanna pick, but that one was the one I kind of latched onto. And so to, to really look at the business like a game and think of it like a game and talk about strategies just felt like I was, it, it appealed to my gamer heart. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. And that's what it's obviously, I think a lot of our audience is going to be able to relate to that mentality. I know for me, um, poker, tournament poker theory uh, became a huge part of my business strategy. Like this idea of, you know, you know, even though you want to make bets that have good EV, but you also don't want to put all of your money on the table if you don't have to, right? You don't want to necessarily go bankrupt because even if it's a good quote unquote bet, right? The three to one on your money, you should be, that's a good bet, but 
you know a third of the time you're going to lose your you might you might lose your money or whatever so so there's there's a uh, you know the managing all that sort of stuff and gameplay and of course even my time playing professional magic uh, definitely taught me a lot about uh, about strategy that that seemed like it crossed over and I think it's really interesting to see it uh, uh, come across uh, the, from the other side the business school treats it the same way. Um, another aspect of, of kind of CEO dumb and management that I am really fascinated about is is the difference. You know, it's one thing when it's just obviously if it's just you, right? You can manage yourself one way. If you've got a small team of people, maybe up to 10, 12 people, where you can you know kind of know everybody and know what they're doing, and you know there's a certain type of management that's required there. And then you start to scale up again, and it gets into the 30s or maybe the hundreds. And I don't know where 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 Wizards was when you when you finally left. What how how big did it get? We had over a thousand employees when okay. I left, but that's because we had a retail arm and retail has lots of employees right right so in terms of the headquarters what you would think of as wizards of the coast and making games and marketing and stuff like that uh we were at around 250 okay all right so huge huge numbers and and what i you know there was a period where my company got up into the 30s and i realized i was not ready to manage even at that tier like i had I just there's a different style of management that's required managing the culture managing through metrics and i'm curious how that transition was like for you or what tips you might have for people who are starting to kind of juggle bigger teams and how do you how do you work with that well i you know it's always having when you're hiring of course the skill set of the employee or prospective employee is really critical and uh, of course social fit and all, all these other things and work ethics there's so many factors that you look for at the executive level hiring people that can manage an area of the company like a manager or a director or an executive becomes even harder because the social skills are more demanding uh, the management skills they have to have and there's um, the management skills that are needed at each level of organization, depending on the size of the organization, shift. And so um, I read a really interesting article, boy, and I, I'm, oh boy, <laughs> I have to, it would be some work to figure out what it was, but there was an interesting diagram about what are the skills that a supervisor needs? What are the skills that a mid manager needs? And what are the skills that an executive needs? And it turns out these skills are pretty hard to interview for. And so we had a lot of churn at the executive level and management level trying to find the right person for the right job and then i think for the ceo level like like yourself i think for me it really came really started to work well once i had a really good number two mm -hmm. and um and then it was like well what does the number two person have you don't want to give them all the responsibility because you know if your only report is the number two person it's too easy to clip that off and you're not needed anymore right sure. so so what what are the responsibilities that a that a senior executive has in your in your organization and what are the responsibilities you keep for yourself and there's not turns out it was very liberating to find out that there wasn't one solution for that it really depends what's his or her skills and what's your skills and What's the best marriage of those two things? Yeah, absolutely. The way I like to look at it is I always think, I always ask people, um, well, either when I'm hiring or even periodically when we kind of do reviews, is like, what are your superpowers, right? What are the three, and when I say superpowers, I mean, you know, typically it's around three things that you love to do, that you're good at doing, and that uh, that people need done, right? That are like, you know, valuable skills for them. You know, when you find the sort of circle of those Venn diagrams, that's where your superpowers live. And Anytime that you can spend doing things within that sphere of your superpowers, phenomenal. Anytime you spend doing anything that's not within that sphere of your superpowers is a cost, 
Not that you can't, right? You still have to do things. And right. some, but but right. every, you want to minimize how much your time you're spending that are outside of your, your super sphere. Uh, and I found that to be a really powerful way to frame it um, because it's easy as a CEO or anybody that's a game designer, somebody that's starting things out, right, to, to want to do everything. And, and if it's just, you know, you're, you don't have any budget to hire anybody and it's just on your own, some, you know, that's sometimes that's what you got to do. You got to do all the heavy lifting and figure it out. But over time, being able, realizing that the more you can hand off something to somebody else um, when it's not going to be your superpower, even if they're worse at it than you. Right, that's the tri- that's actually the tricky counterintuitive insight, right? Like you could do something at eighty percent, somebody else can do it at sixty percent. But if it frees you up to do the thing you can do at a hundred percent, yeah, that can still be a really good trade off for you, which is a, a, a something that took me a really long time to figure out as well. So, I want to transition uh, into another topic which I love. Uh, well, it's close to my heart because I uh, I go every year. It's something I recommend that everybody attends who's interested in gaming, which is Gen Con. Woohoo! The best four days in gaming. <laughs> so uh, you are uh, the owner of Gen Con now. I think uh, I don't remember the exact story. If you bought it back from Wizards, uh, how long ago? So maybe, maybe we'll start with that story. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually Gen Con. The uh, uh, first of all, I love this business. I love Gen Con. I'm glad uh, warms my heart that you say you, you like it so much uh sometimes i say i love this uh convention so much i bought it twice <laughs> so what happened is yes when we bought tsr back in 1997 gen con was the icing on the cake of course we were after dungeons and dragons but it was always like oh and gen con that's that's really cool too and so when i sold the company to hasbro you know i sold all of it right it, it, you know so the, the the next day i own nothing right right uh, but on my way out the door, I told uh, Vince, who was my number two, I said, hey, uh, at some point Hasbro's going to realize that for them, some of this stuff is off strategy. Maybe they know already and they're being nice and they're not telling us. And when that day comes and they start to divest anything here that they don't want, let me know because uh, I've got all this money. Maybe I would be interested in buying something and I would be uh, you know, an, a, an informed buyer. And so, yeah, it was about a year later that uh, I got this call from uh, from Vince, and he said, uh, you know, he listed, yeah, we're selling four businesses, you know. Are you interested in the magazines? No. Are you interested in retail? No. Are you interested in the online store? No. Are you interested in Gen Con? Gen Con? <laughs> oh, how much? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, we we made a deal, and uh, we, we got Gen Con, and that was in 2001. And uh, I have partners. I'm not the sole owner, uh, but um, uh, I've uh, been the largest shareholder ever since. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I want to dig more into Gen Con because I think it's got a, a unique place in gaming culture. But I also just we kind of fast forwarded through the sale to Hasbro, and <laughs> I gotta know like what a a like what what made you decide that it was time to sell? Right, this was like sure. a company you built from the ground up. And then, and then maybe we'll get into like what the, what that day felt like. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was. Um, um, I think for me, as I got into this business to make games and to uh, yes, I wanted to play the game as a business. You know, play the game business, business game. There you go. Uh, but I, I I never Wizards got to the point where I didn't see any way that made sense business wise to make games other than big hits like the Indian Magic. I mean, like, we would do other games, and especially once Pokemon came along, because mm. a lot of people forget Wizards. We had Pokemon for several years. 
and worldwide, and we were making a lot of money. In fact, Pokemon was so profitable that Magic was small in comparison, which made D&D really small. And so to come out with a new board game, uh, you know, whatever Richard's newest game was, there was nothing I wanted more than to say, yes, let's publish this game. In fact, I did. If Richard came up with a game, then, you know, there was no question. We're going to publish it. <laughs> I, don't <care laughs> what, I don't care what you think, <laughs> you know. Uh, but there was a point where it clearly became that we were publishing games or wanting to publishing games that were tiny, infinitesimal amount of business compared to uh, that. And so the lesson I had to learn was that every business has a level that it operates at efficiently. And Wizards had gotten to the point where it wasn't efficient, enough, efficient for us to do games that were less than $30 million a year. And we came that we used that number because it barely let D and D qualify. <laughs> <laughs> so if this was not going to be a thirty million dollar a year business, we're not going to do it. Wow. And because we were efficient at doing a hundred to a billion dollar businesses, yeah, that's where that's where we were at. And so I didn't want to I didn't want to be running a company that couldn't do just whatever sorts of games and yeah it's 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 just this is also just a fascinating insight that I, i'm guessing is going to be really counterintuitive to a lot of people that are out there because it's like hey you could make this game and it would make you 20 million dollars and it would cost you know maybe it costs whatever uh, some less than that to make that as a business it's if you're at a certain scale it's a it's actually a bad idea to make right, that game right right because right. those resources could be spent instead to increase the growth of these bigger properties or take these bigger make these bigger launches and that's like crazy to think about as, as an aspiring you know business yeah. person designer whatever i was like i'll take that business no problem <laughs> you know uh. yeah yeah we would have like uh you know i remember ha one of the wake-up calls was we'd have a staff meeting where we get all the heads of all the business lines together and there were like 20 of us and um uh, afterwards, one day, our attorney, who was our house counsel, and he was a very senior senior person who I really respected a lot. And you know, he said, you know, we're, we we go around that table, and the person that's running Magic gets the same amount of time as the person that's running the Duelist magazine. Hmm. And I'm like, you know, is that a really a reflection of our priorities? And first of all, thank you for being ballsy enough to tell me that. And sure. you're absolutely right. You know. So it's a matter of priorities. It's a matter uh, that you just can't be efficient. And in the other uh, example from my my number two that I hired who helped me run the company, he was a retired Boeing executive, and he said that Boeing went through the same thing. And they scratched every business that wasn't making $100 million a year in revenue. Yep. Yep. I've heard the same story um, from uh, Activision where they, they, they're exactly the same. I know people who've worked on game projects, and they launched it, and it did you know $20 million. And it was killed immediately. Like, you, yeah. it's a terrible, yeah. terrible mistake. Yeah. And it was like, wow. Yeah. And you're sitting here. And so I'm you know, envisioning my future was, you know, I stayed around long enough to get a uh, third edition D&D out. That was a passion of love. And, and that was a, a great exercise. It worked out really well. But once I got that out the door, I saw, you know, the future of my time here is figuring out what's the best packaging for Pokemon at Walmart. And, uh, you know, and, and how do we not how to make money at D&D other than coming out with a new edition every five years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, I, I don't want to do that. I just want to go. I, I got a bunch of money. I want to go and I, I can sell this, have some money, go off and play for a while and figure out what I want to do next. Sure, yeah. And so uh, and so now I just want to get uh, the, the, the 
the feeling that that day you're going through the negotiations, you're shopping around, you're going through the negotiations, you sign the paperwork, the Hasbro has purchased the company, you walk out the door with uh, God knows how much money. What What is that like? <laughs> what does that feel like? Yeah, uh, it's very surreal. Um, and I didn't walk out the door right away. Um, I decided to stay on at Hasbro to run Wizards of the Coast as a division within Hasbro. And so what I actually put my mind to was playing a different game. I said, okay, I'm going to play the game of being the head of a nicely profitable segment of a, of a $4 billion public company and see what that's like. It didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> that's not as fun a game as a <laughs> it wasn't as much as fun of a game and it wasn't something I was particularly good at in those days all my the experience that I had had all trained me to be a good CEO it had not trained me to be a good executive within a larger company and I just wasn't in the mood, I guess, at the time to try and figure that out. I wasn't hungry for it. Yeah. Enough. Right. Yeah, so. that hunger and passion is really, that's the key. It's a, that underlying theme for all of this stuff. So yes. so if you had to compare the, so the, the excitement level uh, of, you know, you sold Wizards and you've got, you know, yeah, you never have to worry about money again versus buying TSR. <laughs> yeah. yeah, buying TSR was much more exciting than selling Wizards. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. yeah that's for sure. Um, but, it, but it was, you know, what was exciting about the sale to Hasbro is that we had all these shareholders who suddenly got a bunch of money. I mean, Wizards, because I never had a lot of money, any money really, and because I never found a, a big investor to really finance the company, a lot of the financing for Wizards of the Coast and Magic the Gathering initial print run was paid through equity, equity to artists and designers, developers, everybody, anybody that worked at Wizards in, in the early years got equity and people and in the latter years got options and so the what was so happy uh, so fulfilling was seeing all these people get a whole bunch of money and like you know people saying hey i bought a house with that money you know yeah and, you yeah. know that, that that was very very rewarding yeah that's amazing yeah being able to really provide for these all of these people is uh, is is pretty incredible and you know, I, I do want to circle back to Gen Con, but but I just, you know, not only is that impact that you've had directly on, of course, the people that work there and the money they got, but that, you know, when you think about the scale of impact that Magic and, and, and your shepherding of Dungeons and Dragons, even other things, like the number of people whose lives have been completely, like, altered and, you know, communities built and families built and, you know, friendships, lifelong friendships. I mean, I'm, I'm only one of many stories. My entire life was changed by magic and getting to travel around the world on the pro tour and make lifelong friends and create a career in the industry. Like, and so many different businesses in the entire tabletop industry wouldn't be what it is today without the stuff that you've done. And so that, that, that must just feel incredible to be able to have yeah. made that tier of contribution to, to the world of gaming. It, it does. It, that's really the, the, the blessing of, of the whole thing. And it, it's, yeah, that's a, a very wonderful feeling, and that's a feeling that never goes away. You know, you can sell a company and still, the, the, you, you, you don't sell the memories of, of having gotten there. Right. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so that, I think, lets us come back to Gen Con, because, you know, in many ways, I view Gen Con as this, you know, sort of 
pillar and celebration of the gaming industry in general, right? Everybody gets together and whatever type of game you love, whether it's RPGs or TCGs or war games or 18xx games, or it doesn't matter, whatever it is that you love, you can find it there. You can find yeah. a group of people that are just so passionate about it and will play it 24 hours a day for four days straight, barely sleeping. Uh, and, you know, I have been going to... Geez, I don't even know. I mean, every Gen Con since I became, you know, certainly since I've been in the industry and and several years before that. And uh, and it's still where I go to meet up with my friends and get to see people I haven't seen in forever. And it's something that I advise, and, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, where if you're a new designer or you're somebody that wants to get involved in the industry, I don't know of a better place to go and meet with publishers and pitch your game or, you know, listen to talks from your favorite designers and get, you know, get connected. You know, there's just no separation, especially coming off of, off of the pandemic year, right? We've learned this very much. We try to build digital tools for this, but there's no separation for that in-person gathering uh, with people that are all passionate about the same thing. Um, and so maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, about this upcoming Gen Con and the things that are that are coming here and, and, and what you see for the future of that. Yeah, so I'd like to talk, uh, say something about the, the history and then come to the present. The um, you know, Gen Con, to me, is the gathering of the tribe, you know? And that used to have a, have even more meaning a long time ago when the tribe was small, you know, and there weren't a lot of other shows and social media and Twitch and everything else to, to bring us together. Uh, but it still has that role in, in my mind. Uh, it's you know, the first time I went to Gen Con, walk in the exhibit hall and see all these game companies to go to a place and realize that, you know, there are thousands of us now, tens of thousands of us in one place who all enjoy these types of games. You know, uh, these types of games don't have the stigma they used to have, but back when these games did have a lot of stigma, it was so empowering. You felt included. You know, you felt like you find a home uh, in, in this. And so that's what I've always loved about Gen Con is everything you said is absolutely true, but that sense of belonging and that sense of being in the middle of things. And and just so anybody listening doesn't think I just say this because I own it. I mean, this is how I felt about Gen Con since way before I owned it. I mean, I, I grew up as a kid wanting to attend. I mean, I, I was in a poor family on the West Coast. It was way too far away. I couldn't actually go to Gen Con. I knew I couldn't. But for years, it's what I dreamed of eventually doing, right? Mm -hmm. And then to eventually, the first time I went was in 1992 as an exhibitor. Yeah. And and that was so exciting. So when I had the chance to acquire it, uh, it was like a dream come true. It, in some ways, it's in some ways it's more special than Wizards was in, in an odd way because with Gen Con, I f what I like this fits, fits my nature too is that everybody is my customer like everybody in the entire gaming industry is a customer of mine at gen con right and so even though there are other shows and yes on some level i'm competing with these shows um i don't feel it that way i feel like i'm really there for everybody um and so as far as gen con this year uh one thing we had to figure out in the pandemic was how to do gen con virtually so gen con 2020 was an entirely virtual convention and, and we're all sick and tired of virtual conventions at some level because we're anxious to all get back face to face and so are we at Gen Con. But we did learn some interesting things doing a virtual convention. For some people, irrespective of the pandemic, first of all, there's a number of people that, that can't travel like I was as a young boy living on the West Coast. There are people now who can attend Gen Con if it's virtual 
And there's a segment of people who aren't comfortable being in crowds, who don't want to be around a lot of people, and uh, for whatever reason. And so our vision for Gen Con now is to do both, to do our physical event in Indianapolis, but to take the virtual piece of that very seriously and run it, um, overlay the two, so that it's really two events as one event. And it's exciting because for a long time we've been in this thing, oh, we got this great convention, but we're kind of maxed out. Like it was weird to have a, a business where you kind of say, why are we spending money on marketing? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> we, we can't hold anybody else. We've maxed out the city of Indianapolis. But now what I feel excited about growth opportunities again, because we could, uh, in addition to having 70,000 people or whatever in Indianapolis, we could have 700,000 people online ultimately. Uh, so there is, um, there's an, it's an exciting, the pandemic has broadened our, our thoughts of what is possible with Gen Con for the future, and that's very exciting. Yeah, that is, that is exciting. And I think, you know, so for somebody that wanted to um, attend Gen Con, uh, either physically or virtually, um, especially in most of my audience here, are people who are, you know, aspiring game designers or people who want to get into the industry and they wanted to come to use Gen Con as a, as a tool for that. What, what advice would you have for them? Right. Well, uh, it's a, it's a fantastic way to network, of course, meeting other people. There are events at Gen Con that are tailored towards people trying to make it into game design. Uh, there are play test events where you can take your game and get it play tested. I think also walking around and talking to exhibitors and finding out you may not be able to get sort of a, uh, a meeting where you're presenting a game to whoever does acquisitions of games for that company. That may not be possible. Um, and But talk to people who are in the industry about what are they looking for in a game? What, what's, what are the trends they see in gaming? What, what do, um, do they accept uh, submissions from, from game designers? What are they looking for? You can, uh, somebody who might close down a conversation that is too blatant, of a, uh, that, that looks like a blatant attempt to get your game published, sometimes you can circle around that uh, and find out interesting information from people in, in the industry. And you can certainly find people who are willing to play your game and give it a try and give you feedback uh, about it. And then just and see what's on the market. I, it's not always easy to get a sense for everything that's on in the market by going to your local game store or just watching Kickstarter releases, walk around the exhibit hall, see what's there and um, and see what people are excited about. Yeah, so, so being able to make contacts in the industry, being able to learn about the industry and learn about the current state of the market, being able to play test your game, um, being able to meet with other designers or listen to talks and, uh, and learn about it are all, are all key are all key principles here that are valuable yeah. um, and then let's take it from another angle there's also so on the exhibitor side and and you know again this doesn't these principles don't just apply to Gen Con I just find Gen Con to be one of the best best places to do all this stuff um, on the exhibitor side you know so the very first copy of Ascension was sold at Gen Con 2010 as a, as a pre-sale there and I had again I had no money back then I invested everything that I had all my savings on making 
Ascension happened. I, I got a little 10 by 10 booth and I applied for the marketing promotion. So I got an extra 10 by 10 bonus um, doing doing just guerrilla marketing wherever I could. Um, and uh, and it was, you know, it caught fire. I mean, it was like one of those things where we had have people in the halls playing the game, demoing the game to other people, like just, you know, and it, and it was just one of those magical moments. So if somebody wanted to try to, to recreate something like that for themselves or, or, or thinking about exhibiting, what would you, what, what advice would you have for them? Uh, plan ahead. <laughs> the, uh, getting into the Gen Con exhibit hall these days is harder than I would like it to be. Maybe not this year because there's a bunch of companies not coming, but um, uh, it is something where good to uh, raise a flag and say I'm interested in being an exhibitor. Uh, you know, about a year out. It's not going to Gen Con 2021 and talking to uh, some our staff about Gen Con 2022. That is not too early. Yeah. Um, so, but also in terms of assuming you can get a space, you know, keep your um, keep your footprint down. It's really expensive. Figure out ways to try and um, uh, be modest on how you spend for decoration. That That is like your booth, you, you know, your tables and your chairs and all that stuff like that. And your electricity, all the, there are things, there are hidden costs. We don't, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, <laughs> but we, it's certainly not our intent that they're hidden, but they're not necessarily obvious to somebody who's never exhibited at a trade show before or a consumer show that it uh, costs money, way more money than you think it should. Uh, because these are companies that expect to get paid, and there's unions involved, and all this sort of stuff like that. Oh, so, I wish I'd never it, learned the word drage before in my life. Yeah, drage. Oh, I, me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Okay. So Gen Con costs too much. You heard it here first. Uh, no. <laughs> um, so let's now. You know, I, I, I think we're, we're we're running short on time, but I actually want to know a little bit more about what you know, what Gen Con, like what the secret sauce is and not, you know, in the sense that somebody necessarily would, would replace Gen Con, but if, you know, there's plenty of people out there that want to put their own gatherings together, right? This, this, how do I gather the tribe and be successful, whether it's going to be a local convention or an online convention or just building something that helps build the community. And Gen Con has just been this stellar example of it that you've shepherded for many years. What advice might you have for someone that was going to try to, you know, build their own convention or get get people together and start start really supporting a community in that way? <clears throat> yeah, well, if, if you want to do like, you know, the best way to compete against a, a big player like Gen Con or any industry is to do what they're not doing, provide something that they can't provide. And what we can't provide is uh, an intimate sort of experience. You know, um, I think that if you're if you're trying to build a huge show, go head to head with Gen Con. Uh, that's one thing. But if you're if you're saying, hey, I want to start a convention, I happen to live in this city that's a mid-sized American city and there really isn't anything in here or I think I could do better. I think what you really have to offer there is an opportunity for intimacy, uh, with like a small community where everybody can know everybody and really good customer service and help people, uh, helping connect people with other gamers. People want to be part of a community. And... Uh, Gen Con has managed to, there is a community there, but it's a huge community, and it's made up of a lot of little communities that do have more of that of that feeling. And that's really what you're selling. You're selling the chance for people, for, for gamers, game designers is a different category, but like for gamers who are your bread and butter, that's, you know, exhibitors are going to be interested in coming if you have a lot of gamers. Mm -hmm. So don't think so much about how do I get exhibitors to come. Think about how do you get the gamers to come. How do you make sure they have a good time? Uh, Gen Con, one thing that Gen Con does really well, it's taken a very complex uh, registration uh, system that we've developed over years, 
where anybody can submit a, an event and anybody can register for an event. So we, we're playing this matchmaker service of helping people run events and help them find people to play the events. Uh, a lot of conventions don't have that. Uh, the really good game conventions do, but you know, a lot of conventions like comic book conventions perhaps that have gaming as kind of a sidelight don't have that. So find a good way to to really create a community and pair let let gamers pair up and get together and play games. I think that's at the heart of what Gen Con has done well, going clear back to the sixties. I mean Wow, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I love the I I gotta throw in, I, I love the legacy of Gen Con. The fact that Gen Con is so old that it was initially marketed as a wargaming convention. Because none of the other categories existed yet. Right. <laughs> there right. were no role-playing there. games yet. Um, it was started by Gary Gygax, who co-authored D&D with Dave Arneson. But he didn't come out with D&D until six or seven years after the first Gen Con. It was there as a wargaming convention. And everything that's come along in our industry since then, trading card games, miniature, well, miniatures were part of wargaming, but say fantasy miniatures and, and uh, a different type of miniature than historical miniatures. All these categories, the explosion of board games, Gen Con has been there on this ride, LARPing, costuming, and you know, to some extent, uh, anime too. Um, we've been home and to all these different categories. We've evolved as these different categories were created. That's one thing I love about Gen Con is we don't have to compete against any of these things. We just feature them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that is that is nice to be the hub uh, where all of the, everybody else gets to uh, gets to live. We don't have to be innovative. We just feature whatever is. <laughs> Let other people innovate. We'll just be here. Right. It's like uh, you know, during the gold rush, you want to be the one selling shovels. It's you're here. Come on down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't need. Um, no, that's great. Well, you know, and I've been I've been having uh, uh, as we built the. The, the community around um, things like game designer you know we have of course the podcast and the book but now I've been teaching an online course um, since November and getting people together but now that the world's opening up again I've been starting to think about hey wouldn't it be awesome to have us all you know get in the same place and do that kind of intimate gathering so uh, if anybody out there listening thinks that would be a good idea you should uh, you know message me on Twitter and let me know but uh, we'll see that's certainly going to be a very different kind of thing than, than Gen Con but uh, I have been uh, really excited to get to have this conversation with you. Oh, Peter. thank is, you for having me. What an honor. Yeah, well, you've had me. I'm in, literally in your studio here and have uh, been uh, <laughs> enjoying uh, being together here. Uh, I always love our chats. It's great to actually get to share this. You're, you're such a, you know, you've been a, a powerful mentor to me and an icon in the industry and continue oh, uh, to kind. drive and all, all of this forward. So uh, it's great to get to share this with everybody. And um, for anybody that wants to uh, follow up, uh, and, and check out more of your stuff, whether your current projects, of course, you know, Gen Con, everything. Where, where should they go? Uh, for Gen Con, GenCon.com on the web. Uh, for my Chaldea uh, stories, YouTube.com slash World of Chaldea, C-H-A-L-D-E-A. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. I'm sure we'll have many more chats ahead. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. 
In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.